Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. Anytime you're in Huntsville, we hope you'll come be part of our worship. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. We hope you'll enjoy this lesson brought to us by Glenn Colley. Our scripture reading for this morning comes from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 22. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 22. For Christ also suffered once for the sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient, when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water, there is also an antitype which now saves us, a baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. Would you open God's book, please, to Acts, the ninth chapter? And if you want an outline of the sermon, you may have it by keeping that passage on, open on your lap. We're going to be referencing more than just that one, but that'll be a good place to start. Acts, the ninth chapter. It's great to see you here today. Paul talked this morning about Family Bible Week that's coming up in just a few weeks here. And every year, that's a big deal around here. A lot of work goes into it. I think the adults probably benefit as much as the kids do, and everybody just enjoys it so very much. This year, we're going to be talking about the conversion examples, four of them actually. And what I want to do is, between the time now and the time we start, I'm going to preach sermons about each four of these examples that we'll be using in Family Bible Week. A couple of objectives. One is that, I, of course, I like it very much when the kids go into their study sessions, their their learning centers, if they could say, I remember that Brother Glenn preached about that. If I can, if I can help them to have a grasp or a memory of these things, it'll enhance what they're doing. And also, I think it will hopefully stimulate some conversation between parents and kids when they get in the car after it's over and what'd you study about? What, what did you watch? What skit did you watch? And how did it go? And, and the parents will have a fresh, uh, view of of each conversion example. And today I want to do Saul. I want to talk about Saul of Tarsus. Now, there are three times this narrative of Saul's conversion is found in Scripture, which is pretty interesting. That makes it unique. Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 22, and Acts chapter 26. And then sometimes there's some criticism about that from people who don't care much about the Bible. Why is it necessary? I mean, isn't this redundant to, to tell the story three different times? The answer is that it's really not redundant. Each one of the three has a distinct purpose. Now, the first one is just the historic narrative. It just gives you the basic account of what happened. And I'm going to read that to you in just a couple of minutes. When you get to Acts chapter 22, Paul is now before his Hebrew brethren, before the Jews, and he's a Jew. Now, remember in Acts 9, this was from Luke. Luke was writing by inspiration, and he was telling what happened. That's just the historic narrative. But now, Paul himself is telling it, and he's telling it before the Jews, who hate him because he preaches Jesus Christ. And, and his, 
is the explanation about his conversion is to say there's no inconsistency between the Old Testament and what you know about Jesus Christ. The Old Testament, Galatians 3, 23 and 24, the Old Testament was a tutor to bring us to Christ, to prep us for the New Testament law and for Christ. And so everything you know about the Old Testament dovetails perfectly into this. I'm a Jew. I grew up just like you grew up. I believed what you believe, but I'm telling you, Christ is the Messiah. Okay, so so that's essentially what you have in the narrative of Acts 22. When you get to Acts 26, Paul now is before Agrippa. He's been before the Roman procurator, Festus, because the Jews are wanting Paul dead. They just cannot stand what he's preaching. And so they bring him before the Romans, and so Festus says, I don't see anything about him worthy of death. I don't see how we can charge him with anything. Well, Herod was there, Herod Agrippa. Now, briefly, the the Herods, uh, that's, that's a name sort of like the Pharaohs, the Herods, Herod the Great. And so Herod the Great, who is this Herod Agrippa's daddy, Herod the Great is the one was, who, who killed the first apostle, martyr, James, in, in Acts chapter 12. And now, here, here you have him called by Festus, come and help me with this. Now, the Herods were sort of artificial Jews, but they knew things about the Jewish faith. They knew about the Old Testament. They had connections. And so, Festus said, Herod, could you help me with this? Would you listen to him? I'd love to listen to him. Bring Paul in and we'll, we'll hear him out. And, and so, that's what happened. When Herod heard him, when Agrippa II heard him, he said, I don't, I don't see anything worthy of imprisonment or of death in him. Those are the three different times the story of Paul's conversion was told. Three different times. What I'm going to do is to read to you from Acts chapter 9, the first one. But what I've done, I've taken a little liberty. Now, I've gone to, to 22 and 26 and where you have some extra piece of information, I've pulled it out and stuck it in. All right? So as you read from Acts 9, you'll be aware of when I've done that. I pulled things out of 22 and 26 and put them in at the appropriate place so that it makes one complete sub, uh, story the best that we have. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, incidentally, 23.1 of Acts, indicates that, that Saul did this, but he thought he was doing God a favor. Don't you be thinking that, that Saul became a Christian because he wasn't religious. He was terribly religious. And he believed in, in all sincerity that what God wanted him to do was to snuff out Christianity and anybody attached to it. And so, I mean, he hated Christians, but he did it for religion. He did it because he thought that's what God wanted. So still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, he went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus so that if he found any who were of the way, Christians, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he journeyed at about noon to Damascus, by the way, if you want to know something about his passion, Damascus is about 135 miles from Jerusalem. It's a long way on horseback or on foot. And uh, he was willing to do a lot to get these Christians in Damascus and bring them back in chains to try them for serving King Jesus. As he journeyed about noon to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priest, 
Suddenly a light, brighter than the sun, shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he, Now bear in mind that Jesus has already been crucified some time back and he'd been rest, raised from the dead and, and ascended back to the Father in Acts chapter 1. This is Acts chapter 9. But, but Jesus appears to Saul on the road to Damascus. Saul, why are you persecuting me? When Saul persecuted the Christians, when Saul persecuted the people that belonged to Jesus, they were persecuting Jesus. Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? The Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do, or which you're appointed to do. And these men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight. And neither ate nor drank. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. He said, Here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying. That's going to be important. Behold, he is praying. That's what he was doing in Damascus, waiting for Ananias for those three days. And in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. Ananias was scared of him. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel, I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. Now, stop there. See, let me tell you something about Saul is that he, he acts on his convictions. That's what the Lord knew about him. If Saul was ever convinced that Jesus really was the Son of God, he would defend Christ. From now on, he would do it with power and with strength and with great courage, and he would do it to the death. And Ananias went his way and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul... The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Then he said, the God of our fathers has chosen you that you should know his will and see the just one and hear the voice of his mouth. For you will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. So when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. All right, again, what I did was to take from 22 and 23 and insert the, the additional information into what you have in Acts 9, and I hope that was helpful to you. What I want to do for this sermon is to specifically review what Ananias said to Saul. Ananias goes to him after those three days in Damascus, and, and Saul is there waiting. He's still blind. 
this miraculous thing has happened to him from Jesus, the blindness, and Ananias then comes and talks to him about what, what plans the Lord Jesus has for him, and then gives him instructions. Now, before we launch into this, I want you to note Acts chapter 9 and verse 6, because it says, you go on into to Damascus, and it will be told you, Saul, what you must do. I just want you to feel the imperative weight of that. This is something that you have to do. You go in there, it will be told you what you have to do. And I declare that, that Saul wanted to do whatever, whatever Jesus wanted him to do. I mean, after all, what, he, what he's encountered is, I mean, this is Jesus who he, Saul, has been, I mean, fighting against with everything he's got. And now he's, he's caught red-handed. He's headed to, to Damascus to put these Christians in chains and bring them back that 135 miles. And, and now he realizes this is Jesus of Nazareth talking to him who died and rose again. And now he's, he's living and now he's talking to me. And I know it. I've seen him now and I've talked to him and he's talked to me. In other words, you know, Romans 1 and verse 4 says that the resurrection proves Jesus to be the Son of God. Ooh, let that soak in. In other words, Saul knows now that Jesus really is resurrected from the dead. And that proves him to be the Son of God. This Saul goes into Damascus. He's blind, can't see a thing. He goes and he sits down and he waits to be told what he must do. But I'm going to tell you this. He knows with all of his heart that Jesus is the Son of God. You with me? He knows he's the Son of God. All right. Break down with me Acts chapter 22 and verse 16. At the top of your paper, if you're keeping notes, at the top of the paper, right? Acts 22 and verse 16. Ananias said this, And now, why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Four points. Let's just break the verse apart. Arise and be baptized. Now, don't you think it's interesting that that's not, that's not what was said to everybody in the book of Acts, the book of conversions? I mean, for example, if you're in Acts 16, and that's going to be one of our lessons, in verse 31, and, and as the jailer, what Peter, uh, Paul said to him was, um, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thy house, and thou shalt be saved. That's not, that's not what Ananias said to Saul. Why not? Because he, did, he already had done that. He already believed that Jesus was the Son of God. Ananias didn't say to him, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. He didn't say that. But, well, why not? I mean, that's what, that's what Peter told the people in Acts chapter 2 to do in verse 38. Repent and be baptized. He didn't tell him here. Ananias didn't tell Saul here to do that. Why not? Well, because Saul had already done that. Saul was there praying for three days, begging God for mercy. He believed that Jesus was the Son of God. He knew that all he'd been doing was wrong. And now he gets it. Now, while he's blind, he sees all of it. What Ananias said is, I want you to rise and be baptized, because that was what he had not done yet. Do you understand how unique the Church of Christ is? in reference to the teaching today about the necessity of baptism. Have you, have you any idea how unique, how unusual that is? There are literally thousands of denominations in the world today, thousands of them, 
And, and here's the church of Christ. By comparison in numbers, we're not the largest one, nowhere near. And yet we teach something unique about baptism. What we teach is that baptism is necessary for salvation. That is to say that you're not saved. Your sins are not washed away until you're baptized. Is that the truth? I should parenthetically say here that I don't use terminology about denominations as people often do. The Church of Christ is not a denomination. A denomination, and you're familiar with the word, we use it in reference to money, different denominations of money, and we understand what that means. And in religion, what it means is that, that there are these thousands of different churches, faiths, and, and they're all part of the church. And each of these are denominations under that one big heading, the church. But that's just not true to the Bible. That's not how the New Testament teaches the matter. It talks a lot about the church, but it's not like that. As a matter of fact, it teaches the opposite of that. that, that not that we would speak different things in one body, but 1 Corinthians 1.10, that we would all speak the same thing. Be no divisions among us, but that we'd be per- perfectly joined together in the same mind, the same judgment. And so that's how come you have the church talked about in the New Testament. It's the church. Well, what if we just go back and we, we practice what they did in the New Testament, then what would we be? We would be the church. And that's what I mean when I say the church of Christ. I don't mean any denomination, but I'm telling you among denominations, and I don't say, by the way, I don't say in referencing the church, I don't say now, and the other denominations, because that implies that we are. I don't want any part of that. I just don't want any part of denominationalism. It's just a wrong concept. That doesn't make me, that doesn't mean anything about me in particular, except that I'm just saying that's not what the Bible teaches. So we ought to just want to be a part of the church. Now, in denominations, it is almost always true that what is said here would not be said by them. They wouldn't say it this way. Uh, and I have, I have a quote here that I want to bring to you from GodAnswers.org. I don't know if you're familiar with this, but it's, a, it's an interesting website, and it's a conglomeration. It's a group of people who answer biblical questions, and sometimes it's interesting when you're studying a subject to get a different take on it, and oftentimes what they say is the truth, you know, but when you ask the question about salt and about baptism, here's what you're going to get. Requiring any, and I, I raise it because I think that what they say is very typical of what most denominations say today. I think they did a really good job at expressing that viewpoint, and that's why I'm bringing it to you. Requiring anything in addition to faith in Jesus Christ for salvation is a worked, a works-based salvation. To add anything to the gospel is to say that Jesus' death on the cross was not sufficient to purchase our salvation. To say we must be baptized in order to be saved is to say that we must add to our own good works and obedience to Christ's death We have to add to our own good works and obedience to Christ's death in order to make it sufficient for salvation. Jesus' death alone paid for our sins. Jesus' payment for our sins is appropriated to our account by faith alone. Therefore, baptism is an important step of obedience after salvation, but cannot be a requirement for salvation. Now, 
you, you see the verses up there. Let's just go through a couple of them. Romans chapter 5 and verse 8. God commends his love toward us. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. All right, good. That's right. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21. That he was made sin for us. That we might have the righteousness of God. Or Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8. For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves is the gift of God. Not of works lest any man should boast. And so the assertion is that, you know what? Baptism is a work. And so we're going to practice baptism. Bible teaches baptism. We're going to practice baptism. But it has nothing to do with salvation. It has nothing to do with your sins being washed away at all. And incidentally, Ephesians 2 and verse 8, of course, it's the truth. It's the Bible. For by grace are you saved. Are you saved by grace? Of course we are. Not a, not a one of us would have any hope without the cross, but the mercy. We have to have the mercy. For by grace are you saved through faith. We're saved by his grace through faith. Grace is God's part. It encompasses everything God did to save man. Faith is our part to respond to that in obedience. All right, so back to what this says. I want you to compare this with what we have in our text today, Acts 22 and verse 16. Why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins. Now let's go to the second point. And wash away your sins. And wash away your sins. Now, what's really interesting about this to me is, is that it's, it's what has happened. Uh, when you say wash away your sins, what is it that you mean? Do you mean, I mean, how do, what, what is washing away your sins? Does it mean that it, it washes away your temptation to sin? If you become a Christian, are you no longer tempted to sin? Well, that can't be true because most of us in this room are Christians and we know that we face temptations. We know that we do. Does it mean that after you become a Christian, you never sin again? Well, no, no, doesn't mean that because First John chapter 1 says that, well, we just, we, if, we, if we say we have no sin, we make him a liar. We still sin sometimes, don't mean to. We've, we've repented of our sins, and when we learn that we're in them still, we want to get out of them. What does it mean to wash away your sins? It means to wash away the guilt of sin. It means to wash away the guilt of sin. I want you to be impressed now. Let's, let's go back to questions.org. And um, I want to impress you with the order of things in this, in this chapter. Yes, there are some verses that seem to indicate that baptism is a necessary requirement for salvation. However, since the Bible so clearly tells us that salvation is received by faith alone, stop, that one kind of gets under my skin because... The only time you find, we're not saved by anything alone. The only time you find this term, by faith alone, is in James 2 and verse 24. It's the only time you find it. You know what it says? You see that by works a man is justified and not by faith alone. Excuse me, excuse me, that says the opposite of what this says. And this is espousing that it, that it clearly says we're saved by faith alone. Excuse me, that's not what it says. It says the opposite of that. We're not saved by anything alone. And I'm not minimizing grace or faith or anything. I'm just saying that the Bible says what it says. John 3 and verse 16, For God so loved the world, and Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Is that true? Of course it's true. Nothing wrong with telling people if you want to be saved, you've got to believe in Jesus. 
But that doesn't mean that you don't have to repent of your sins. Parenthetically, the hardest thing about becoming a Christian is not belief. I don't think. It's not confession. It's not certainly not being baptized. Being baptized is not hard to do. That's not hard. Repentance, that's the booger right there. Repentance is the hard one. Is that a true statement? Is that the truth? That's the rough one right there. That's what's, I mean, you're talking about a lot of work that, that you'll be working on the rest of your life. That's the hard one. Is that a work? Yeah, yeah, I'd say so. And it's involved in belief. When you say you want to be saved, you've got to believe in Jesus. Yeah, that means, that means you've got to repent too, right? That's part of belief. Back to, the, back to the quote. So, because the Bible clearly tells us that salvation is by faith alone, there must be a different interpretation of those verses. So when you read in the verses that baptism is in order to be saved, hold off, don't believe that, because that can't be true. There must be a different interpretation. Scripture doesn't contradict Scripture. Well, that's true. In Bible times, a person who converted from one religion to another was often baptized to identify conversion. I do not know where that came from. I, I know he doesn't cite it, but anyway, he needs it to, to support his false idea. Baptism was the means of making a decision public. Let that soak in. In other words, I have faith in Jesus, I'm saved, my sins are washed away, and I'm baptized in order to show everybody publicly that my sins are washed away. My baptism has nothing to do with my salvation. I'm already saved. has nothing to do with washing away my sins. I'm already cleansed. I'm free from those sins, right? I'm baptized just as a public display of what has already happened. Let it soak in. Those who refused to be baptized were saying they didn't truly believe. It reflects on their salvation if they say, I'm not going to be baptized. So in the minds of the apostles and early disciples, the idea of an unbaptized believer was unheard of. When a person claimed to believe in Christ, yet was ashamed to proclaim his faith in public, it indicated that he didn't have true faith. All right. I want, I want you to think about Acts chapter 22 and the conversion of Saul and get the order because this is just huge. And then I want you to compare it with this quote. See if it lines up. So, so Saul gets permission in Jerusalem from the chief priest to go and arrest the Christians in Damascus, 135 miles. Go to Damascus, arrest the Christians, bring them back in chains, and we'll try them. As Saul is going to Damascus, almost there, a bright light from heaven, a voice from heaven saying, why are you persecuting me, Saul? Who are you? I'm Jesus of Nazareth, who you persecute. I know this is hard. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. That is, you know too much to be doing this. You're too smart for this. It's hard to kick against the goads. What do you want me to do? Go into the city, and it will be told you what you must do. He goes into the city. He stays there at the house of Judas. Different Judas, not the one who crucified the Lord goes to the house of Judas, and he's there for three days fasting, and he's praying. Now, I, don't, I wasn't there. The Bible doesn't say exactly what the content of those prayers were, but use your imagination. What would you be praying under these conditions? I think he was praying, don't bring fire down and burn me up, 
right? Three days. Three days. And then Ananias comes to him and says, among other things, why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins. Why would you say that to a man whose sins were already washed away? That doesn't make any sense. The fact is, you wouldn't. But also, just 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 get or think through this. What that means is that that Saul was not saved. His sins were not washed away while he was on the road to Damascus. His sins weren't washed away when he saw and had this brief conversation with Jesus. His sins weren't washed away. This is a big one. His sins weren't washed away when he spent three days praying before Ananias got there. See, he still had his sins. He still had his sins. Are you with me? To that man, Ananias says, why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins. Now, one more thing. This I'm saying that Saul wasn't even a candidate for baptism. If, if this answer from God questions is true, if this common, really popular viewpoint of baptism was true, you better not baptize Saul. You can't baptize him. Why not? Because he still has his sins. And baptism is for people whose sins are already washed away. Got it? You baptize a saved person. You baptize one whose sins have already been washed away. Yeah, they, they were washed away at the point of faith. They were washed away when the man prayed to Jesus. Well, what? That, that's, that's when you, the, your sins are washed away according to this idea. You can't, you can't baptize a man who's all, uh, whose sins are not already forgiven. That's the idea. But, that, but Ananias didn't know that. And Ananias said, why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins. Now, let me quickly add this. This is wholly consistent other passages, clear passages about baptism. So in the Great Commission, Mark 16 and verse 16, going to all the world, preach the gospel, the good news to every creature. He that believes and is baptized shall be saved. Wow, that's consistent, right? It all comes together. Well, what about Acts chapter 2 and verse 38? To, to repent and be baptized for the remission or forgiveness of sins. Well, yeah, but I mean, if you I mean, if you could just show me a verse that would say that baptism saves us, then I would believe it, would you? I, I just, I would like to ask that question. Would you believe that? Because 1 Peter 3 and 21 says the like figure or what's that word? The antitype, the like figure whereunto baptism also now saves us. It, do you suppose that baptism has something to do with saving us? Does it have something to do with that? That's what, that's what Peter says here. Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh. See, because you might confuse going down the water and being immersed. You might confuse that with being, you know, getting a bath. Maybe it's washing your skin. Mm, not that, he says, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. That's what it means. I'm just saying that, that what happened with Ananias is not an anomaly. It's not an exception to the rule. It's consistent with these plain verses about baptism. What did, what did he say? He said to this man who who saw Jesus, who talked to Jesus, who's been praying three days, who clearly is penitent, what he said to him was, what are you waiting for? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins. Calling on the name of the Lord. All right, let's do the last one, uh, the last clause here. Calling on the name of the Lord. What does that mean? Well, I know what it doesn't mean. 
Matthew 7 and verse 21 is what you ought to write in your margin there. Matthew 7, 21. Because Jesus said, Not everyone that says unto me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that does the will of my Father which is in heaven. So it's not just saying, Lord, Lord, shouting, Lord, Lord, to the sky. I know from Acts chapter 2 something pretty important about calling on the name of the Lord. Now, briefly, let me, let me explain it. In Acts chapter 2, you have the beginning of the church. You have Peter and the other apostles. Jesus has already risen back, ascended back to the Father. And now it's time for the church to be begun. And you have the miraculous. You have the tongue speaking there. And Peter's the main spokesman that we have recorded. And, and Peter says, wait a minute. You see all this miraculous going on? You see what's going on today? This is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. This is chapter 2 and verse 16 of Acts. And he says, here's the quote from Joel. Joel, here's the prophecy of Joel. And then in verse 21, Joel has prophesied, Acts 2.21, and Peter's relating this, that Joel prophesied that, that on that occasion, whoever called on the name of the Lord would be saved, that they would be saved. Okay, hold that. People who called on the name of the Lord would be saved. Peter's saying, this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. So hold that, and then let's go over to the lower part of the chapter and say, what is it that those people did to call on the name of the Lord and be saved? And the answer is, in verse 38, they were told to repent and be baptized for the remission, the forgiveness of their sins. Verse 47, the last verse of the chapter, it says, these people were being saved. What did they do to be saved? Well, they repented and they were baptized. There's a, a rule of logic that says things that are equal to the same thing are equal to each other. Same chapter, same day, same sermon, same preaching. And, and Peter says this is what Joel was talking about. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Those people repented and bab were baptized and they were saved. And I'm saying that what we do to call on the name of the Lord is to obey the gospel. We repent and we are baptized. Now, here's the closing point. So... The, the way, uh, the, the thing that uh, Saul was told by Ananias started with these words. And now why are you waiting? Why, what are you waiting for? I can think of, of good friends of mine who have said different things about, who have learned the gospel, they know what to do to be saved, but they have this, this hesitancy. And, and you could add to this list, it's not, and I, 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 I would say that these are very common. The first one would be, um, well, there's so many things I don't understand yet. Well, that is very common and understandable that, that you might feel like that. There's not a lot that a person has to know to become a Christian because that's not the end. It's just the beginning. It's just the beginning. I've been studying the Bible for many, many years and teaching it. And, and I'm telling you, every week, every single week of my life, I'm studying the Bible. I, I, I spend hours and hours every week studying the Bible. And I'm, I'm growing, and I'm learning, and I love it. You don't have to know a great deal in order to become a Christian. As far as I know, everybody, where we have the specifics of conversion in the book of Acts obey the gospel after having heard one gospel sermon. You don't have to know a lot to become a Christian. Now here's the second one. But I would have to change so much. I don't know if I can change as much as I was need to to become a Christian, to be that. And you know what? Mm, I, 
I can't shortcut this one. I wouldn't do you any favors, you know, to say become a Christian and don't change the things in your life that are sinful, that are wrong. And you're going to learn when you become a Christian. You're going to grow. You'll learn and, and you'll, you can't just give up. And a lot of people frankly have. I, I can't shortcut this. In Luke chapter 14, you have this, Jesus is talking about people becoming his followers, his disciples. And he says, what, which of you is going to build a tower and doesn't sit down first to count the cost? Well, what's interesting about that is that it's not about, if you apply it to disciples, it's not about um, deciding to become a Christian because if I don't, I'll be lost eternally. It's counting the cost of what it is to be a disciple. If I'm a Christian, what will it cost me to do that? And the answer is that it's going gonna, it's gonna to cost everything. You, you, Christianity is a lifestyle. You, you give yourself over. You turn loose with both hands, and every day you get up and say, I'm going to be the best I can be today to be like my Savior. What about the next one? This isn't the way I was brought up. I was raised in a different religion. Right. You know what? Most people, most people have had religion in their life. Was religious, right? Before he became a Christian, he was very religious. He was devoutly religious, massively religious, and he was persecuting Christians when he learned the truth and and obey the gospel. I would give you this hopefully comfort that you know when you say, "Well, my parents weren't part of this," they, so I don't I don't know that I could do this. Listen, you you don't have to give up one truly biblical principle or practice that you already believe to become simply a New Testament Christian. Whatever's true, really true with the Bible, you don't have to give it up. You you keep that. You correct the things that aren't really biblical. You walk in the light of Jesus Christ. What about this one? I, I was baptized in a different religion. Well, that, um, that may be true. But do you understand that, as we talked about this morning, that it is so exceedingly common for religions to practice baptism, but not the one that's talked about in Acts chapter 9 today that we've been discussing. They, they will not practice a baptism that's in order to be saved. They will not. I mean, I, I, I have friends through the years. I've had lots of preachers who are my friends and preaching for different, de, different denominations. And I can assure you that they would never, they would never, under the same conditions we've talked about today, answer the question this way. They would never do that. They would never say, arise and be baptized and wash away your sins. They cannot say that because it's inconsistent with what they preach. They can't say that. In Acts chapter 19, you have 12 men who were baptized. They were immersed. But when they learned about Christ's baptism, the fact that they had been baptized with John's baptism mean they had to, meant they had to be baptized again. The purpose for which a person is baptized has a bearing on the validity of that baptism. And now one more. I'm afraid I couldn't live the Christian life. Now, you know, there have been a lot of people become Christians and then fall away from it. But it's not a good argument. I mean, I understand this. I, I'm, I believe a person who says this that that's a fear. I don't. I don't see. I don't see how I could hold up. That I could sustain this for the rest of my life. And I don't know the answer to that. I know that you'll have a lot of encouragement. I know. I hope you will. I know that I'll be happy to study with you and help you and whatever. I know that. But 
just to be frank, I, there are people who have walked away from it. That doesn't mean you shouldn't try. It's kind of like saying, I, I don't, I really don't see how my children will ever graduate from college. So I just, I'm not going to enroll them in first grade. You wouldn't say that. You wouldn't, uh, or, or to say, you know, I don't think that any woman is ever going to marry me. So I'm just not going to ask any of them out. Well, hold on a minute. You, you know, you could be mistaken about that. You could make it. You could, right? And so it is. So it is with this. I love the conversion examples because they're so critical. I'm, I'm about helping people go to heaven. But, but what we've got to do is to get to the scriptures. We, we've got to, to say, what does it actually say? And, and the book of Acts contains the examples of conversion that we need. Read them and study them and say... I just want to be a Christian. I just want to be a Christian. Is there somebody here this morning who wants to obey the gospel? All I'm suggesting is that you do exactly what these passages say that we've talked about today. Nothing more, nothing less. And I will give you this promise. It will make you just what they were. Christians. You'll just be a Christian. What denomination will I be a member of? None. You won't be a member of any. I mean, in Acts chapter 2, when those people, the Bible says, were added to the church, what denomination was that? And the answer is, they didn't exist then. They didn't exist. These people were added to the church. It was just the church that Jesus was talking about when he said, on this rock I'll build my church. And why shouldn't we do that? Why shouldn't we just be Christians? That's what we're encouraging. If you would like to obey the gospel today, now's a great time and we'll be happy to assist you to, to do that. If you need the prayers of the Christians today, we would be so happy to do that. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word, brought to us by Glenn Colley. If you have comments or questions, Glenn can be reached by email at colley at westhuntsville.org.